extraordinary adventure. More than ordinary. In the gym. At home. At work. More than ordinary. Advice. Without the new agey bullshit. Welcome to More Than Ordinary. I'm your host, Anne-Marie DeMars, and we have a co-host here today, Chris Brown. So, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your sports background, your academic background, what you're doing now? Hi, everybody. So, my name is Chris Round. I know Anne-Marie through judo. I've done judo for close to 20 years, and I trained for a long time under Jimmy Pedro in Boston. I did it right up until I left for graduate school. Um, I went to Indiana University to get a master's in environmental science and another master's in environmental policy analysis. And then currently doing my doctorate in environmental science and policy, I look at the integration of information technology into environmental policy and how that changes power dynamics between stakeholders and how that can really change relationships um, in the process of governing. And then my day job, I consult with the U.S. federal government um, as environmental scientist and analyst. All righty. So how did you get from judo to that? You decide when you're a little kid, I want to be an environmental scientist. Um, I initially was very, very into paleontology and had intended to become a paleontologist right up till I was about 16. And then had a brief moment of thinking about becoming a vet, but kind of had the view of, well, these animals are all cool, but they're gone. They're extinct. <laughs> you know, and I've always, I'd always loved animals and I decided, okay, well, I'll, I want to go help animals are still around. So I eventually settled on becoming a conservation biologist and that's really what my um, undergraduate degree is in. And you can't be a conservation biologist these days and not be staring at climate change in the face. Um, it's, it's really impossible. Um, some species that you might be working on or some issues you might be working on might be dealing with more short-term threats, um, things like wildlife trafficking or habitat destruction. But you, you really can't avoid it's at least engaging somewhat with the climate change discussion. And I became interested in that. And I became very interested. It's not just the science of it, because ultimately I was interested in, you know, I didn't just know what things were. I wanted to go out and help. So for me, that was that led to a path of studying environmental policy and studying adaptation efforts. So let's talk about how you got all those degrees, because before we started recording, you and I were talking a little bit about student loan debt. So I got a bachelor's degree from Washington University in St. Louis, which has the dubious distinction of being one of the most elite institutions in the country in terms of income. That is, they have a really small percentage of students who come from the bottom quartile in, in income, and I was definitely mired in that bottom. So I went to Washington University in St. Louis. I got an MBA from the University of Minnesota. I got an MA from the University of California, Riverside, and a doctorate. And all four of those degrees, I ended up owing a total of $900 in student loan debt at 3% interest. So, Want to trade? <laughs> I was going to say, how does that contrast with your experience? Oh, my gosh. It's so – it's night and day. Um, so, you know, I, I also came out with two master's degrees. I did a dual master's program. I have well into six figures of debt um, to do what I want to do. Now, 
part of what figured into my math for all of that is thankfully under the Obama administration, there were several programs that went into place where if you were planning on going into a role where you're working either in nonprofit or working in government work, either local or federal, there are forgiveness programs. And that's largely what I'm tracking myself to do eventually. Really, it's it's interesting if you look at the statistics around student debt, because when you look at people who tend to have six figures of student debt, it's usually the people who have gone on to do secondary degree programs, graduate degree programs, which is just kind of an interesting thing. And that lumps in, though, that doesn't just lump in doctors and lawyers who, you know, if you come out of medical school or law school, you're going to have six figures. It's I know very few people who walked away, um, at least people my age who walked away from that without that kind of debt. You're usually tying that to a pretty high income, but that also includes people like social workers and fields that you really do need or really should have a master's degree or equivalent. And that becomes that becomes kind of morally and politically complicated. That's one of the things that drives me crazy, too, in the current situation where people say, well, why don't these lazy millennials get off? And I worked through school and and yeah, I worked through school, too, but my tuition, like I said, for my MBA at the University of Minnesota, I was a research assistant, so I didn't have to pay it. But if I did have to pay it, it'd be like $300 a quarter. So we're going from a situation where people could work a minimum wage job full time. And I mean, it wasn't fun. You know, I worked the graveyard shift. So I worked midnight to 8 a.m. And then I went to school. And then in the evening, I went to judo practice. So it wasn't fun, but it was doable where now I think the University of California tuition is something like 25000 a year, and I presume the U of M is the same thing. So it's, it's not doable, I think, for the average young person at all. I mean, in my case, my first year at Indiana, I was working three jobs. I had a really bizarre job, and I actually I ran a fraternity house. You find great stuff on Craigslist. <laughs> <laughs> so my room and board was taken care of through that. But then I also was working for the university as an intern at 13 bucks an hour. And I worked at, I was also working an internship that was about 10. So altogether, you know, I, I pulled in 13 or 14,000 that year. And that was not a dent that, you know, I was, IU out of state, I think was 28 or 30. So you take out, you know, whatever you need for your living expenses and you don't end up you don't end up mixing a lot of that because uh, at that point, all you need is, you know, all you need is a serious medical expense or, you know, your car, um, your car gets totaled or something like that. And I think some of the discussion fails to recognize that there's a significant intersection. Everyone jokes about poor college students, especially and especially poor grad students. But there's a real intersection between, you know, ex- some degree of poverty for people when they're going through these periods where I, not only are you taking on student debt, but it's a good chance you may have to sign up to take on additional loans because you break your leg. Um, so you end up having this weird intersection with issues around health insurance and how much does your health insurance cover. I personally held off on going to the dentist for about three years because I couldn't afford to do it. And... You know, one of the first things I did when I got uh, my job, uh, when I got my job consulting was, okay, I got dental insurance. Let's go get all this fixed. We'll be right back. My parents love me. They want me to be happy and healthy, to learn and be confident. The best gift they can give me is an education. 
With Seven Generation Games, I can play and have fun while I'm learning math and history. Seven Generation Games make games that make you smarter. And you know what? I like being smarter. To get Seven Generation Games, visit sevengenerationgames.com. One of the things that really drives me crazy, too, is I get used as an example of, look, you can do it, where so many of the people that I grew up with couldn't do it. So, yes, if you come from an environment where you have very, very little money, you can work really hard, maybe get scholarships and go to school and succeed, but that's a tiny fraction. And one thing that makes me really frustrated is it seems like we don't really acknowledge the fact that it's so much harder for some people. Like my my daughter, Jennifer, she went to USC. Now she's a very bright person. She went there, she got her master's and her teaching credential. But like you said, that's not a high paying job, but she was able to go there for free instead of paying $80,000 in tuition because I worked there. She was able to not take out any loans to live because she could live at home. And she said to me, when she went back to grad school, she says, you know, as much as it's going to suck to move back into my old room, you know, $80,000 degree for free, I'm going to do this deal. Where if she didn't have that opportunity to have someone else covering her living expenses, have free tuition, it would have been many orders of magnitude harder for her to get to the point she is. Mm -hmm. And that's why, and that's the other thing, you know, you see these articles, you know, millennials are killing, are killing breakfast Um, or millennials are real ones are, you know, looking at homeownership amongst people in the, you know, at this point, the age group between 20 to 40. And well, of course people are buying in my generation are delayed on buying homes. We're busy spending a mortgage payment on a combination of rents and our student debt. Like that's, it's not the same situation. There are some interesting complications that have popped up when we look at, especially when you talk about like, honestly, some predatory student loan loan practices. And ultimately keep in mind, like if I go run up a credit card bill and I can't pay it back, or if I get a, you know, a loan and I can't pay it back, I can still declare bankruptcy. I can't declare bankruptcy over student loans. Now, of course, there's not a whole lot of collateral. What are they going to do? Take back the piece of paper they handed me. But, you know, it's you're kind of sticking people with this debt and they don't have a great way to figure out how to get out of it. And in some cases, they either don't have a choice. They have to get this credential to go into a necessary field or they're just not aware enough or not mature enough to be making the decisions around that debt. Because a lot of 18 year olds, surprise, surprise, don't have everything, don't have it all figured out. That's one of the next grants that we really want to do, the next uh, uh, educational applications that I think there's such a huge need for is on financial literacy. Coached judo for many years, and often I would have young athletes who were 18, 19 years old asking me, you know, is this a good price for a ticket, or how do I get a credit card? And they, I met people who didn't know how to write out a check, and I'm thinking... How do you not know these things? But then I realized no one comes, you know, down the birth canal knowing this stuff. And especially if you come from another country and your parents don't speak English, they can't necessarily help you navigate through a lot of those financial pitfalls. So, yeah, I think we're in a situation where people who have a certain amount of knowledge, that's cultural capital for them. 
it's not just the money. It's the knowing that there's other options for lending. Don't go to a for-profit school. So yeah, I think we kind of covered student debt a little bit. I wanted to get onto other things. You had mentioned wanting to know about the difference between consulting and ed tech. Yeah. (laughs) Did you have any specific question on that? Oh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I was kind of wondering, you know, in terms of project development and general culture, you know, what you felt as though, what have you seen in terms of different approaches as to projects? What have you seen in terms of, you know, just general outlook and feel? Because, you know, as, as you know, like each industry sort of has a different cultural feel. We'll be right back after this. Did you know that 92% of U.S. homes have a computer? Yes. Yes, they do. And 43% of homes have a child under 18. Why aren't more kids playing educational games on those computers? Because they suck. The educational games, not the kids. Until now, download Spirit Lake or Fish Lake. Check out Forgotten Trail or Making Camp with no download required. All of our games are under 10 bucks. Teach math and social studies. Let your child play on a real computer and learn real-life math. If you're on Steam, be the coolest aunt, uncle, big brother, or sister on the block and download Fish Lake. The little rug rat can play on your computer, learn fractions, and you can get some peace. from a really big consulting company to starting my own consulting company. And then I went into doing a startup. And those are three different things. So going from a really huge company, of course, there's going to be all the regulations and the insanity that I found, whether it's a big consulting company or a big aerospace company, you have huge disconnects often between the marketing people and the people doing the production. (laughs) So we would get these crazy schedules where, and I don't know if this happens to you at your job, where someone would go to the client and say, it will take us 12 months to do this analysis. And the client would say, well, I want it in six. So the marketing person wants the contract. They say, sure, we can do it in six months. And then they come back and they try to beat everybody over the head to meet that schedule. We, at a large consulting company, in my view, wasted a lot of money on being very, very, very specific about deliverables and what the client wants, where at a smaller consulting company, we still do that, but we don't spend 10, 15% of the contract on it. Mm -hmm. The flip side, going into ed tech, going into a startup, it's a much, much faster environment. Like today I said, oh, I have to finish this in an hour because we've gone to daily meetings for 10 to 30 minutes. Just where are you on this project? Mm-hmm. And those 20 people might all be competing to get the same slotted hours. Right. Or here there's 11 of us across two countries. So we don't have that much disagreement. And I think we have a really, really fantastic team. So one great thing I think about working in a startup, if you're lucky, is you have people who are very excited about building something new that's never been done before. Where in consulting companies, often it's, we know exactly how to do it. We have the table shells set up. We have the templates. We're going to go through process A for this new client. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think the other thing about it is the focus where a lot of consulting companies, whether they admit it or not, will do just about anything that makes money. In our case... We have to make money because I have to make a payroll every two weeks. 
but we also really have a vision of trying to provide educational technology in the areas that Silicon Valley forgot. So I think that also has been a big difference for me in moving from a big consulting company to an ed tech startup. I can attest that it, it, there's been a lot of interesting literature in terms of blind spots, in terms of things that Silicon Valley forgets. It, it actually influenced some of my doctoral work and some of the paths I went down in that way, where I think people people will think that whatever Silicon Valley is working on now is going to be the immediate world changer. You see it actually with blockchain tech, where people are like, we're going to use blockchain to solve of world hunger and it's like well okay how if you actually know what the technology is you're like eh that doesn't really do much i've done a decent amount of work in machine learning thankfully now people are much more aware of it but if you go back even a year or two the amount of blind spots that were occurring because people didn't understand the context of the data that they were working with was frankly a bit absurd um it resulted in some situations there's a great book looking at this specifically called weapons of math destruction Oh, that sounds great. Oh, it's fantastic. I, I really, I highly recommend it to people. But it involves these case studies where they brought in, you know, they brought in a major machine learning company and said, okay, use machine learning and AI to solve this problem for us. And the company either didn't know, didn't take the time to properly understand the problem they were asked to address. And they didn't spend enough time with subject matter experts to check their data, check the raw data that they're working with for biases or to consider historical issues. A, a really good example is there's a medical school in Canada that they went to train um, their machine learning model to suggest who they should admit and failed to realize that the school they were working with only admitted white males for the first 50 years of existence. So had a very biased training data set. So they get back the results and all it's recommending is for white males to be admitted to their school. And they're wondering why is this happening? And they figure out, oh, it's because no, it's because the company we're working with didn't actually take the time to check for bias in the data set or consider historical norms within what the school had had. So thankfully, discussion of Silicon Valley's blind spots, or at least I, from what I have seen, is increasingly coming up, especially in light of any discussion over algorithms that I've seen. But It's not just how methods are applied, but what problems we choose to focus on. So, for mm-hmm. example, with us, we mostly focus on educational software for low-income, low-resourced areas, whether it's Indian reservations in the U.S. or in the inner city or in micro-schools in Chile or in the inner city of Santiago. That's not an area that a lot of ed tech companies are interested in because they don't see there being as much money there. So we've got people doing startups to bring you warm milk and cookies in San Oh, I guess it's warm cookies and milk, but whatever, in San Francisco, and not focused on bringing you educational technology to teach you math in Tomei, Chile, because there's not money in that. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I see George Pissimus on uh, our Facebook refer to you as a commie liberal. So I guess <laughs> I guess I'm a commie liberal in the sense that I believe there's value in educating children, whether they're on an American Indian reservation or in a one-room schoolhouse in Chile. And I think that that is of more value than helping you rent a luxury villa. I would agree. I would very much agree. There are some things, and it's probably about as far deep as I want to go on this, um, on a podcast that people can search. (laughs) I would even 
I would even argue that there are some things that a for-profit model as, at scale is going to struggle with, and that and that maybe there might be a role for recognize recognizing, hey, I'm not going to make the most money here, but this is the right thing to do. And I, especially in some areas I've witnessed um, in consulting, I, w- I wish that was a bit more of a common thought. I was talking to an investor, a really nice guy actually, in Silicon Valley, and I said that we want to make money and we charge for our games, but we were able to secure federal research funds to underwrite the cost of development. So we don't charge huge amounts because so for under $1,000 a year, you can get all of our games for all the kids in your school. Mm-hmm. So it comes out to about $1.50 or less per student. And he said, well, why don't you charge 10000 a year and sell to these schools the really high-level, expensive private schools, and you would make more money that way? And I said, I didn't quit my job paying six figures so I could make the more advantaged kids in America even more advantaged. More advantage. And he said, so you're a communist then. And I, I think there's got to be... That's a not even the definition of communism, but go on. <laughs> well, he was joking. Oh, okay. But I think there is, joking aside, a real binary idea in this country that either you are wholesale capitalist, let small children labor away in factories <laughs> or back at you know the 1800s era, or you think the government should take everybody's money and give it to people who lay on their couch. I think we need to see that there's somewhere in between there. You can have a company, try to do something that benefits society, and still try to make money on it without gouging all of your employees and customers. Yes. Um, or, you know, taking a key insulin drug, buying the, buying the patent for it, and then multiplying its cost by 4,000%. We're on the same page there. I think one of the tough things, I won't go too much into politics, but one of the tough things is when you look at systems like what the United States utilizes, to an extent, you have to you have to recognize that not everyone's going to win in a market system. One, so you have to make sure, just for the sake of everybody, that everybody's taken care of. Otherwise, the market system will begin to destabilize. And the other one being, at the end of the day, like you know, not not everyone is going to be Mark Zuckerberg, and a lot of people just don't have the resources or the luck or you know the access to things for that to happen. And the assumption by people that, you know, everyone has that opportunity, I think literally comes from a limitation of perspective and a limitation to recognize that, hey, maybe some things are more difficult for other people. So, uh, and and oftentimes a lack of empathy. We'll be right back. Did you know that kids on average lose two and a half months of math skills over the summer? That means that when they go back to school this fall, It's almost like everything they learned in math since mid-March never happened. Seven-generation games can help. Combining adventure gaming and math, our games are the perfect way to keep kids' math skills up to date. It's not flashcards or worksheets, but 3D video games and engaging apps that kids actually want to play, even when they're on summer break. Check us out at 7generationgames.com. 
let's switch to something more fun and exciting, maybe. So Sounds good. Let's talk about your judo experience. So you are very interesting to me because you competed in judo for a long time. You weren't on an Olympic team, yet you still compete in judo. You still coach in the UFC, and you seem to have a very positive opinion of your years in judo. Is that a good summary? Yeah. So um, I, tell me ahead. about it. What did, what did it mean to you all those years you were like hacking away at the national rankings? So it did two things for me. Um, uh, above all, you know, so some people listening to this may or may not be aware, I, I'm on the autism spectrum. And it effectively acted to, for me as, you know, very advanced occupational therapy. But that really wasn't why I got into it. And that really wasn't why um, I stuck with it. A lot of it for me was I was kind of looking for something to be invested into that I would, you know, I was looking for a goal, I think, when I was really young. And I had, you know, I had Jimmy Pedro in front of me um, and I had your daughter right in front of me. And, you know, suddenly something that seemed really fantastic and far off seemed like something that was attainable. And let's look past the fact that I have the base athleticism of a doorknob. (laughs) Suddenly those things don't become these fantastical dream things. These become things that are, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z, I can achieve this. Now, of course, in practice, that's not true. Um, Some people have athletic gifts, some people don't. Um, But I think what it did for me was it kind of wiped any sense of, it helped reduce sense of limitations for me and what I put on myself. Cause you can't really have limit. You can't really place a whole lot of limitations on yourself when you're trying something like that. You're trying some kind of like great quest. And as a result, when it came time for me to switch over and go, okay, cool. I, I tried to make, make a couple of Olympic teams. It didn't work out. All right. Well, I want to go off and have my scientific career and go into policy and stuff like that. My first thought isn't, okay, where can I get into? It's, all right, well, what's the best place to go and how do I get there? What's the, you know, what's the equivalent to dropping myself in Japan for six months or getting going to a place like a Pedro's or the OTC or something like that? So I think it really, in that respect, it really positively helped me. You did a really smart thing, in my opinion. And the other person who did a similarly smart thing is Justin Flores. Where I see a lot of people, they don't make an Olympic team, and so they keep going, they keep going, they're 34, 36 years old, still trying to make the Olympic team, still living off the bank of mom and dad. And the, I think it was 2008, Justin didn't make the Olympic team. It was really tough. I mean, I, I don't know if you know, but I've known Justin's dad since before Justin or Jacob were born. So anybody listening, if you don't know, Justin and Jacob Flores both made the Olympic trials. Their father is a... a probably six degree black belt now who helped coach them. So anyway, after the 2008 Olympic trials, Justin finished his degree, started his business, and he's done really well as a graphic designer. In fact, he did the art, most of the artwork for our games, Spirit Lake and Fish Lake, and he's been super successful. You did the same thing. You said, okay, I tried to make it to the Olympics. It wasn't meant to be. And then instead of pursuing that for the next six, eight years, you went off and you put a lot of your focus on other things. What do you think made you make that decision while other people are 
kind of like the judo version of the comic book guy from Simpsons. Oh my gosh. Oh, actually two things. One was my coach. Um, Jimmy was adamant that everyone try to go to school. You know, the whole point of his pro of his program initially was that, yeah, you would go try to go to the Olympics, but he didn't want people being judo bums. So that was one. Two was my, I, both my parents are college educated. My mother works in higher education. It was a point of pride to me. This is a sign of immaturity at 19, um, but it was a point <laughs> of pride to me. Like, you know what? No, I'm going to, I'm going to go into a hard major and prove I'm smarter than other people uh, by finishing a hard major. Good for you. So a good chunk of, so I was going to school the whole time. I mean, I had a period where effectively I got to do a semester abroad in Japan where I was training at Scuba University, but I was taking courses online. I was hacking at it the whole time. And actually what happened was um, when I didn't make the world team in 2010, in fact, I crashed out of nationals in a really, really spectacular fashion. I was sitting there and was like, oh, well, if I just kind of focus down, I can get my degree finished in two years because I continue to take courses. And I think that's one of the things that happens sometimes. You get those people who are there 35, they haven't made an Olympic team yet. And yeah, they're sitting at maybe number four or five in the rankings, but who cares? Is I think it, going to college or going and getting that training feel might feel intimidating. Whereas if you kind of keep poking at it the whole time, when you realize that, hey, you know, this isn't going to work out, it's easier to make that transition. I think that's a really good point that you want to just keep poking at it. Because when I was competing, I was getting my MBA. I felt like I'm working full time. I'm on the U.S. team. I'm traveling to compete. I am going to graduate school full time. And I went to my advisor and said, I, I just don't think I can do all of this. And he was very wise. And he said, is this judo thing something you could do later in life? And I said, no, not really. I mean, it's not something you can, you know, you can't win the world championships at 40. Mm -hmm. And then he said, okay, well, you should consider instead of dropping out of graduate school, cutting back. Because he said, in my opinion, it's always easier for people if they have cut back to, say, a half of a course load to ratchet it back up to a full course load than people who have left to come back. And that was brilliant advice that I would encourage anybody who's ever thinking of dropping out of, out of school, whether it's college, graduate school, whatever. Think about if you could just slow it down, scale it back for a while, because I did. I, I cut down my course load for one quarter, and then I went back up and I graduated. Yeah, and I mean, that I really... I really can't emphasize doing that enough. And the other thing, too, is sometimes it's just better if you try to do everything at once, things just, it's not going to work. You'll end up failing at everything or not, or doing mediocre at everything. I had one semester where that was really clearly the case. Um, the semester I graduated from my undergrad, um, I was trying to train full time while also, you know, going to, I had a massive credit overload. And at the end of that, I was like, yeah, you know, never doing that again. <laughs> I was the opposite because I mostly had to work. But my last semester I, of my undergrad, I saw all my friends who were going to college on trust funds. And I thought, I bet if I didn't have to work, I could make the grades these guys are making. I mean, I had to have a 3.0, like a B average to keep my scholarship. But I took out a loan my last semester and... Yeah, all of my grades immediately shot up to A's because I didn't have to work all the time. So sometimes it's not an option 
to not have to do multiple things at once. But because of that, when my kids were in school, I paid their tuition, I paid their room and board, and I tried to make it possible that they wouldn't have to work full time because I saw how hard that was. Yeah. Um, the other advice I'd give somebody if they were, you know, if they were trying to trying to go for the Olympics in judo or anything like that is it's not just that like training and school take time away from each other. They kind of balance each other out in a weird way. There's some resiliency there. So, you know, if you have an exam that goes poorly, but you have a good tournament, you know, you're, you can kind of stay even. I think um, that's so true. I, and, you know, I, I personally have had some issues with anxiety and depression, and I will say that that really helped me get through and kind of continue to produce well and continue to, like, stay productive. What do you mean by uh, that really helped you? What was the that? That ability to have areas to feel like you're drawing accomplishment or draw, or presenting progress in, if that makes sense. Yes. I actually found it far easier for me to be working full time and competing internationally than if I just done one or the other. I mean, now people say, oh, you can't do that. Well, you can do it because you don't work out eight hours a day. And for me, I was so competitive that... If I got I've heard stories. <laughs> if I got third place in an international tournament, I would I would cry all the way back to you know across the Atlantic and generally somebody has to die for me to cry. So it was really easier for me to have something else that judo wasn't my whole life. So even though I might have got third in the British Open, I was still coming back to my job as an engineer. I was still going to go and work on that new inventory control program, and I was still going to have fun learning this new programming language. So it all kind of worked out. We have like four minutes left because I have to take off for another meeting, but I am not laying off the hook here. Everybody in this podcast has to give a tip. So you need to give a tip on anything. If anyone out there is looking to, like me, did a lot of judo and is maybe looking to do some Brazilian jiu-jitsu to scratch that itch without, you know, blowing their knee out or blowing their shoulder out again, or in my case, three times, take the time to recognize that just because it looks like something you've done, that doesn't mean it's exactly what you've done. Oh. And that was something I learned going from judo to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That's something I learned in transitioning conservation biology and different field environmental science. That's something I, and that's something I have to do as a consultant to recognize, okay, I see, I've seen something like this before, but not get caught up in, you know, kind of either your own self-confidence or arrogance or whatever and thinking, oh, it's not a new thing because even if there's similarities, that's how you get caught and make mistakes. That's really, really good advice. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the More Than Ordinary podcast. For more information, please go to our website, 7generationgames.com. And that's 7 as in the number 7, generationgames.com. If you'd like to learn more about math and history or increase your vocabulary while at the same time having fun, you can purchase our games at 7generationgames.com slash buy. You can also donate and help a much-deserving student. And as always, please tell a friend and don't forget to rate us on iTunes. It's never too late to 
be more than ordinary. 